0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded. That always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Roz Ward, and I'm the host of Red Flag Radio, and I'm very excited about today's episode. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast, and we really like to, um, well, talk about all things revolutionary socialist, which sometimes and often is historical, and sometimes like today is very much um, what is happening right now in the world and with people who are involved in those struggles. So if you want to support what we do, if you like what you hear Um, Don't forget we have a Patreon, and thank you to all the people who regularly donate, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. All right, so Liam is also very excited about today. Um, Liam Ward, who uh, produces the podcast about the discussion that we're going to have and the guests that we have to um, help us with that discussion. So um, welcome back to Rob Narai. Actually- have you been on before, Rob? I sort of felt nah. like you must have been, but you haven't. <laughs> you've invited been. me. before. In oh, my <laughs> goodness. I, can't, I don't believe you refused to come on. But anyway, you're here now and we're excited to have you. Uh, Rob's a socialist. Um, and if you've been following the coverage of what's happening in, in Myanmar, um, Rob Narai is the author of a bunch of the um, pieces that are in Red Flag newspaper, so the kind of uh, sibling of this podcast. I like to think of the paper as like an offshoot of the podcast, but it's not really, obviously, it's the other <laughs> way around. But um, So Rob's been writing for that, and in the process of that, I know that you've had um, or are continuing to have quite a lot of contact with students and working-class um, trade union activists and people on the ground, so it'd be great to hear about that. And our very special guest today is Yi yint ung who is a Burmese-Australian... Um, committee member of the uh, Victorian Myanmar Youth and has been involved in some of the solidarity actions that have been happening here. I wanted to start um, by asking you, Yint, about um, your background. How come you're getting active around this now? I know that you are Burmese, of course, but um, how did you end up involved in all of this?
1: Um, so yeah. Hi, first of all, thank you for having me. This is, this is really exciting. Um, so I kind of got involved. Well, I, I guess I've kind of been involved my whole life, um, as sort of, as pretentious as that sounds, it's kind of a fact. So like, you know, grow up, grew up kind of like going to protests, you know, yearly and stuff. Um, uh, you know, uh, making the science and stuff since I was like a little kid Um, so I guess like the struggle or like this sort of like involving myself in this protest in these sort of like struggles has always kind of been a part of my life. Um, and I guess like with this sort of recent, um, February 1st coup, it was like, okay, all right, let's let's get back to work. It's like, I, I need to do what I need to do. Um, so I got in touch with Victoria Myanmar Youth, um, through, um, my friend Chris, who was a founding member. Um, and uh, another, another Burmese, and, and he, um, yeah, so through him got involved with all the sort of like activism work, and yeah, um, uh, because we kind of realized that, I guess, like, this sort of this, um, what's happening now in Myanmar is kind of like our generations, like 88 in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a kind of like our sort of turn to show our defiance. So yeah, that's, and so that's how I kind of got involved.
0: And your parents left in '88, and you refer to that the generation that um, resisted. Then, do you want to just say a bit about what happened in 1988 for people who don't know?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, so what happened in 1988? So that was happened. When did it happen? Eighth. Oh, how can I forget this? Eighth <laughs> of August, 1988. So, if you know anything about Burmese culture is that we are very into numbers we're really into like numerology and things like that, so that was a very auspicious uh time to i guess defy um the government so that was a youth led uh, as well um youth led sort of nationwide protest that happened um that happened then um that was that was in defiance to the 1962 ruling government um and by government i mean like military dictatorship basically so um nationwide protests you know tens of thousands like the the like the amount of sort of people that you see here like in these like recent protests as well it's like um it's it was of that magnitude as well um so what happened yeah in defiance of like the military and things like that and um Unfortunately, I don't know the numbers, um, but it was the death toll was in like the tens of uh, like in the tens of thousands at least.
0: Hmm. So your parents were involved in that and left the country basically because they were worried about th- their lives.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. So my parents would have been very young. I think they. I think my mum would have been sixteen or seventeen, and my dad would have been in his early twenties. So they were all a part of it, and they um, and because of you know the crackdowns and stuff like that, they um, they fled to Thailand um, and became re- and were refugees for a few years, uh, yeah, a good almost like ten years, and then um, yeah, I was born like a few years after nineteen eighty eight, and we came here in nineteen ninety
0: five. Yeah. So if we jump forward to today. Um, and people have sort of reflected on um, some of the similarities to 1988. But I guess for people who are not familiar at all with the politics of the country, there's an impression that, you know, there has been um, some degree of democracy now, and Aung San Suu Kyi is the most famous kind of Burmese person in the world, but, you know, isn't she sort of, hasn't she been able to, lead the country and things have been a lot better. And so kind of what happened now?
1: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so to sort of explain that um, more, I think we have to sort of like understand how um, the government was built there. So um, so as you said, so Aung San Suu Kyi finally sort of became a sort of um, a figure in politics. Uh, this sort of this transition to a civilian government happened in the early 2010. So, um, there was a transition. So like the idea was, uh, the proposal, sorry, was to transition into a civilian government, um, in like a weird quasi like semi-democratic system. So while like the majority of the government was a civilian government, the army still had a 25% holding of seats in government. So there was this sort of like slight progress, but like not huge progress, I guess. So um what was your what was your question again I went on
0: So went then on the tangent. so it sort of was like things were progressing towards democracy and then there was the yep. most recent elections and then on February the 1st um it all suddenly changes
1: Yeah yeah so everything sort of changes um on February the 1st um so this coup um is related to that 25% holding of the army in parliament. So basically they, yeah, so Aung San Suu Kyi's um, national League for democracy party, won in a landslide. I forget what it is, but it was a very large percent of votes. And then the Tatmadaw, uh, Myanmar's military um, claimed it was voter fraud and things like that. And then staged a coup um, mm-hmm. just because they could not um they could not see themselves like losing any sort of power
0: mm. and so rob, looking at um the immediate response i mean, I think people were kind of su- my impression is that people were surprised that uh there was this kind of resistance and, imme- and so immediately um that people sort of immediately just came out onto the streets because mm. the threat that the armed forces Pose is not, um, is pretty, um, intense. So, have you been able to trace any particular groups or people or, um, organizations or anything? Like, how in this instance was it possible for everyone to, you know, come out so courageously?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it comes like with hindsight, you can always be like, oh, of course this was going to happen, but, if you do follow the, some of the politics in the country, um, you could see that there were these, I think, the two necessary ingredients that has resulted in the sort of mass defiance and resistance and strike waves and what have you. One of them is the existence of a relatively radical student movement in the country that has been, it, it hasn't just been in the period of, um, you know, democratic civilian rule that's existed before that, as you say Um, you know, students who played a pivotal role in 88. But there's been quite a lot of student activism in recent years. So one of the most probably not talked about um, elements of it has been around the question of racism and ethnic minorities. So um, Aung San Suu Kyi's government is infamous for the genocide of the Rohingya. It was actually students who opposed that and there were demonstrations against that, something that's completely written out of history. Um, So, a lot of those um, student activists have gone on to become nurses, um, doctors, civil servants and what have you and they were the people who initially put the call out um, to, you know, defy the new junta. So, those early days of February had a group established calling itself the Civil Disobedience Movement um, or CDM and as the name suggests, calling for civil disobedience and importantly, um, strikes like people walking out of work and so you know those people could have you know very well been tortured killed um arrested etc but they knew that um they were connecting with something that was bigger and i think even if unconsciously or not the other component that has become quite quite apparent in the struggle is um a very quite combative young workers movement which has been built up Um, over the course of civilian rule as well. So um, prior to the transition that you mentioned, like trade unions were just illegal effectively um, under the the previous military junta. And so this period of democratic rule, um, even though, you know, the NLD government was, when you have to say pretty crap um, overall, like you have basic democratic rights, but, you know, like the continued, continued using of racism to um, divert class anger, like, you know, calling police on to strikes and all of these sorts of things, all these loopholes that allow bosses to exploit um, workers. The basic fact of you could set up a trade union and strike, that's something that all of all, uh, large sections of the working class could see like this is under threat by this coup and it is under threat, like trade unions have been banned um, since late February, it's illegal to be a member of the trade union, could mean an arrest warrant or death. So like those two components have re- you've really seen kind of come together in the resistance of the last month and a half. Mm.
3: One of the things that's uh, I've seen a kind of pattern in what I've been reading, some of the interviews or just kind of little grabs of comments from participants, mostly here I'm thinking of some of those young unionised workers who are on strike, like the garment workers and so on, textile workers and rail workers, you know, as well as, of course, you know, those sort of professional uh, industries, as you said, nurses, civil servants, and so on. One of the patterns that I've seen is people saying, you know, under the junta, it's like what you were just saying, Rob, uh, under the military dictatorship, our unions were illegal, you know, and we're not going back. We know the value of what we've built. We, we're we not going to let our unions be taken away again. The other thing that's that I've picked up a few times in in comments is uh, people saying, you know, oh, my, you know... It's kind of like we're first-generation workers. You know, my parents grew up on a farm and now I'm in the city working. That, like, that should ring a bell, I think, for anyone who's studied revolutions throughout history. You know, that sort of industrialization that happens. People come into the cities and join these unions and start to appreciate their collective strength. Um, you know, and, and that can be kind of explosive. And the other ingredient in the mix there, of course, is that, you know, because they are relatively new, these unions, perhaps, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps there's less of the sort of dead weight of the mass union bureaucracy that you have in other countries where the unions are 100 years old and they have a social democratic party allied with them and so on, which also can be a, another kind of, you know, explosive ingredient in the mix. Our comrades across the world.
0: You mentioned before about your parents being involved in 1988 and the kind of, yeah. the fact that it's your generation now that is, Carrying that, that legacy and that sense, um, you know, that it, yeah, that you can't, you've got to go further than they were able to go in 1998 because what's the alternative at this point? Is there a sense of that amongst people you know and your age kind of group?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you've just nailed, oh, got some goosebumps thinking about it. Basically, like, we've, you know, um, I've talked about this where. Both, um, say, like, my friends who grew up here. So, like, my fellow, like, Burmese Australian friends, as well as, like, my, um, international, like, uh, sorry, uh, like, international students and stuff who have sort of, all people who have recently moved here. So, say, um, friends who grew up in Myanmar and then moved here, um, in recent years and stuff like that. It is definitely, like, an all or nothing sort of, like, attitude now because, um, they've grown up, like, say, for, like, we've grown up like um, Burmese Australians and like they've grown up as well, you know, in a sort of, um, in a much more sort of like relaxed, more free um, society than like my parents were. Um, Yeah. And there's like, and we've seen, we've seen what this uh, military have done to our parents in the past. We've seen, we've seen it and like, we've experienced it and we've heard stories and all these things like that. Like, there's no going back like absolutely not mm. sorry there is like a no there there is like a literal like do or die sort of like attitude with this sort of like um new sort of um yeah with this new group of like kids and when I say kids like um people my age and like younger you know mm. so yeah there is like definitely like a much more sort of defiance in the air
0: yeah and that's incredible really isn't it when you you know, if you listen back to the episode that we did with Ben Hillier on the streets of Hong Kong in the midst of the mm-hmm. uprising, like, he basically said the same thing. You could probably say word for word, like, the same thing about yeah. young people feeling like, you know, this is it now. What Like, what's the alternative is basically a, a brutal yeah, like, well, dictatorship. and Yeah, exact, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it has gone, I mean, it's also surprising Sorry, Liam wants to jump in. I mentioned Hong Kong. No, it wasn't just Hong <laughs> Liam, that.
3: please, yeah. please. Okay. <laughs> um, just, you know, yeah, you mentioned Hong Kong. I mean, of course, one of the other things about what's happening in Myanmar right now is, is that it's not just happening in Myanmar. And when you think about the, I think you mentioned, yeah, or maybe it was Rob mentioned, the, the Milk Tea Alliance, you know, this solidarity that's sprung up, you know, uh, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Myanmar.
0: Why These is it called that, that Liam? The
3: Milk Tea Alliance. Because, it, well, the history, this is an interesting, uh, um, <laughs> do you really want me to go down this trajectory? Yeah, I do, I do. The, yeah. No, uh,
1: it, it's actually fantastic.
3: It started really? out as uh, there was people in like uh, CCP, like Chinese CCP trolls on Twitter who were trying to attack the movement in Thailand um, and who uh, said something, I can't even remember how it came about, but they said something to, to try to uh, attack the movement there um now i'm forgetting the details but somehow it came out that the people in thailand uh the activists in thailand said well you can you can attack thailand for drinking milk tea but that doesn't we don't give a shit like it's not like just because our rule, just because we drink the same tea as our rulers it doesn't mean we have anything in common with them we're not like you ccp stooges you know uh and so that kind of spread then to uh every country because of course in china most people would drink tea without milk but in hong kong and thailand and Taiwan, for that matter, too, and in and in Myanmar, there's and also right through Southeast Asia generally, there's like a milk tea tradition, you know, like sweet, usually sweet, like condensed milk. Taiwan, of course, has bubble tea, which we're all very familiar with, you know, like this this thing about like oh, China drinks uh, black tea, but others don't, you know, uh, and so that's kind of where it started, uh, but it's become much much more than that now, you know, it's this thing, it's this thing about like it doesn't have anything to do with you know attacking Beijing or whatever anymore. It's much more about we are young people, mostly young people across Asia who are fighting for democracy. And if the only way we can describe our unity is by referring to milk tea, well, then fucking that, that's what we're called, the you know, Milk Tea Alliance, mm. you know? So it's a really nice, I think, sweet, excuse the pun, uh, uh, expression of, of international solidarity. And I think it's particularly powerful to look at the solidarity. We were just chatting about this, be- uh, Yair and I were chatting about this before the session started. The solidarity that we're seeing unfolding across Thailand and Myanmar historically is just like spine tingling. These are two countries whose whole, like you know, uh, you know, capitalist pretend national identity has been founded on on animosity towards each other, you know, and there's been wars fought and all the rest of it. Uh, and uh, 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 to see not just the milk tea alliance, but more more significantly, I think the three finger salute to see that uh, popping up on both sides of the border between Myanmar and Thailand, and to see Thai activists. Protesting outside the Myanmar embassy and being beaten up and pepper sprayed uh, because of that, you know these are these are explosive and, and spine tingling aspects of solidarity, of mm-hmm. an evidence that courage is contagious, that resistance can spread, and that revolutions uh, can surmount, you know, even the most what look like the most insurmountable uh, kind of national borders.
0: Mm. Rob, you the other into? thing
3: that I think significant, yeah, I agree with what Liam just said
2: and I've had a couple of experiences talking to um, both like student and labour activists in Myanmar but then, you know, student labour activists in Hong Kong and one of the things that I was chatting to um, a friend over in Hong Kong um, this morning and he was saying, I was saying, what's the impact that it's having over there and he was saying, well, we've had some protests like, you know, all of, all of our, like, activists are being dragged through the courts, they're all facing charges, um, all of this sort of stuff, but there's been protests. But the important thing that's kind of filtered through um, for him, he's saying is that it's not so much that there th- this opened up this big space for all of this late, like, trade union organising, but he said that the power of, like, seeing the working class in motion inside of Myanmar for a lot of these new very new trade union activists over there. It's just given them some sense of hope that there's like we can push through and we can start organising in these industries by seeing the sort of defiance and the courage of what's going on on the ground in Myanmar, which relates to it didn't really click to me the significance of the three-finger salute um, until the other day when I was talking to uh, a a student activist at Yangon University, which is currently being occupied by um, the Tatmadaw they've set up military barracks there because – and they're just rounding up student activists and arresting them because it's one of the most militant um, campuses in Yangon. And they were – she was going out to agitate um, to the soldiers to leave the campus basically to defy their, um, um, their superior officers um, and say that they shouldn't follow their orders. And I asked her just like what – like, you know – you could die, and she's like, "Yeah, like it's wor- Like it's w- death is worse. Oh no, living under a military junta is worse than death. I'd rather die. This is a fight to the death, and that that three finger salute, I think, is very, very indicative of the sort of courage and spirit and determination of what's motivating um, these young protesters across the region.
0: And I guess for people who don't know. Um that much about the Tatmadaw, so the armed forces. Um, Yiyin, do you want to talk about how, what people's perspectives are, pers- you know, their perception of the armed forces? Um, like, what does it mean to kind of hate the army in Myanmar?
1: You mean, like, to, to openly hate the army yeah, in Myanmar? I, mean, well, or it... I guess
0: people have had have always uh, felt, you know, <laughs> like how do people feel about living under a, a military dictatorship? Obviously your, your parents tried to do something about it and then in the periods in between, like the kind of um, day-to-day life, the treatment of people, the question of like the, the – Deliberate division of ethnic minorities in the country and stuff like that. Um, can you tell us a bit about what that's like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I guess so. That period between like that between before the weird civilian government transition, um, I can talk a little bit about it, just because like I wasn't living there, but I I know uh, I know through stories of like my cousins who live over there and like and, and like relatives and stuff that sort of like live over there. Um there is this sort of like um like you have to be very careful of like what you say and who to trust over there because, you know, um there will be sort of people disguising themselves as civilians that work for the military and things like that. So there was like so it's just like uh we just it's like this general sort of feeling of suppression, but it was like weirdly like used to it. And there were like always these sort of like weird workarounds as well um so generally people don't trust the police over there oh, at the time at least they don't trust the police over there they don't trust like any sort of like authoritative figure over there um so they weirdly sort of like started to trust each other like even perfect example i was talking about um i was talking to i was talking to someone on twitter and they brought up like this thing called lujun which is the idea that you don't send your mail through the post office, but you send it through, like, people and strangers and stuff like that. And, you know, like, for example, like, oh, you know, take this, like, bag of rice to this, like, auntie that you'll see on this street and she'll take it over to this street and things like that. And I was like, oh, my God, like, that was just something that, like, that was just, like, I didn't know that was, like, a universal experience, like, over there in Myanmar. It was, like, this... um I just thought it was like something like my family just did, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, if you're going to Yangon, just like give this bag of treats to like this auntie that you've never met and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh my god. So it was like a weird universal experience. Um. Yeah. So yeah, it's it generally like we I, we or they like learn to sort of like do things on their own and find out find like that's a perfect example of just like trusting one another and things like that. Um, regards to sort of like ethnic minorities and things um, I know like for me like it was a very sort of like jarring and I guess like shocking experience to know to not know I guess the division of ethnic minorities over there because I grew up here and like you know I'll go visit like the other side of town to go like see like my Karen friends or like my Moon friends or like my Shan friends and things like that. So we're all sort of like just sort of got along here. So I didn't know about like all the divisions and things like that 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 um, the Tamador did like um, use to divide people as well under like this weird sort of like idea of like nationalism of like what it means to be like Bama or like what it means to be Burmese, quote unquote.
0: Um, yeah. And so for. For, from a socialist perspective, thinking about then this emerging new young working class, Rob, can you tell us a bit about whether those divisions still exist in that in the workers' movement? Um, in the t- like, what type of workplaces are the biggest and most important? We've seen and heard a bit about garment workers because obviously there's a connection with the, the clothing industry in Australia and um, the amount of stuff that's made by workers there. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear a bit about that as well, I reckon.
3: Yeah, like
2: one of the things is that understanding some of the recent history, um, Liam mentioned it before, about there's been a lot of um, rural migrants into the cities and a lot of them are from these ethnic minorities. They're being pushed off their land by, you know, huge large-scale agriculture that is... um, both, you know, owned and controlled by the Tatmadaw, um, but also like, you know, they have capitalists from China, from Thailand, um, from Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, helping them invest in these projects. And, you know, it, that that happens alongside, um, you know, state terror against these gr- different groups. So they have some experience of, I hate the military, they're my enemy, and they're 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 being pushed off their land and they're often moving into... The cities, um, and you know that process was still happening even under you know civilian rule. It's still a process that's, that was happening, and a lot of these um, young workers, or you know the, the they're like first generation um, workers, so they're still you know effectively farmers, but they've gotten into the city, and then their parents might still be living in the countryside, and they're having to send remiss- remittances remittances back um to the countryside. But you could you'd have to say to some extent, especially in industries like the garment industry, that a lot of those ethnic divisions um, have broken down to some extent because everyone is just from different parts of the countryside and these different ethnic groups. Yeah you knows a lot more about that side of things um, than me. But you have to you have to say that that kind of experience of um collective work um in the cities is actually breaking down some of these divisions um it's not to say that they don't still exist but you can see that how that you know when you're working in a workplace of you know ten thousand people and your enemy is the boss you can see that a lot of these divisions are like a barrier to actually effectively organizing against the boss they'll try and use the racism and, you know, often it's in the garment industry in particular, the sexism as well, the social conservatism. But you can see that, like, you know, the sort of strikes and um, even riots um, of the last 15 years in sections of the working class in the cities kind of prove that, you know, overcoming those different divisions has been quite central to trying to get organised.
0: And have there been particular people who've, sort of driven that or is that just like a natural process because this is sort of like you know the intervention of socialists would be to say well there's more that unites us than divides us like this you know drawing out some of the political lessons and pointing at them when they happen and saying look this is happening now can you see what the what the army are trying to do what the bosses are trying to do is the same thing to control us and all of that i mean It seems incredible, although obviously I think there's something in Lenin somewhere about people will learn the lessons when it's like the time to learn that lesson, you learn it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, does anyone have anything on that? Like,
2: Lane, do you want to go first?
3: You yeah, so I did, but me. but but it's not a direct answer. Maybe I'm just going to add more to the. Maybe I'm just going to complicate okay. <laughs> the question and add another question <laughs> yeah. to the questions. Because <laughs> you know, it's true that it's true that the the resistance to the junta and the you know the kind of you know proletarianization, I guess, of these ethnic minorities who are being you know taken off the land and into the cities and and that whole process. It's true that that does tend towards you know a, a new sense of kind of class unity, uh, but I still think that. Uh, you can imagine a situation where the other thing that socialists would say, which isn't just about, you know, there's more that, there's more that unites us than divides us. It's not only that. It's also that we would also support self-determination for those minorities, you know, and like the Karen, for example, have been fighting, a, you know, a long time kind of campaign for autonomy and that we would support that as well. And that that's part of the struggle is to say, yes, we are for, you know, unity of the class. But we're for for a unity that is, you know, uh, that crosses ethnic lines, but is also, um, you know, consensual and kind of voluntary. And that, and that, you know, the oppressed minorities, the oppressed national minorities in Myanmar, that the revolution, the revolutionary movement, is stronger if it supports their demands for autonomy, up to and including if they raise it the demand for national liberation and independence. You know, and and so that that would be. I don't think anyone in, in, I don't think any of the ethnic minorities are raising that demand at the moment, but it could potentially be an ingredient in the mix. You know, I think one of the lessons from history is that when these revolutionary upsurges happen in countries that are sort of cobbled together by colonialism and, and, you know, the old divide and rule strategies of the empire are kind of still playing out in all sorts of ways, uh, that revolutionary movements that don't take that seriously and don't, you know, seek to explain how the liberationary project you know, of the revolutionary movement is is liberation for all, including the the oppressed nationalities, uh, you know, dig their own grave. So, you know, I think that would be something to look out for in the ongoing. When I say I'm adding a question, I guess that's the question. Like, is that a a feature today? I don't think it is. You know, one of the things that has struck me is that like there has been, there were mass protests by the Karen before the coup um, and that they've, you know, now taken up, you know, they see themselves now as, well, we are now part of this anti-Junta movement uh, and same with the Rohingya, you know, the, the, seeing the Rohingya join the protests has been one of the most, you know, amazing things that I've seen since since the start of February, even in the refugee camps, some of the international yeah. refugee camps of the Rohingya, there's been protests in support of the movement against the junta. Mm.
2: Yeah, and then it goes both ways. There was like images from the early street demonstrations where you'd have protesters walking down the streets of you know, the two biggest cities, Yangon and Mandalay, and they'd have placards saying, we're sorry for what happened to the Rohingya. And you'd mm-hmm. see that at the same time that, you know, all of these Rohingya and the big refugee camps in Bangladesh um, with placards saying, you know, down with the coup, we support the people mm-hmm. of Myanmar. It's Yeah, it was it's quite an, amazing to see. On the worms that Liam has opened up, you have seen <laughs> elements of, Because I think I was talking to Yain about this on the weekend um, at a rally, that, you know, the way that the military pits these different ethnic groups against each other, and a lot of them do have um, in the countryside like armed guerrilla groups, which is a component of the mix around. um, (laughs) It's hard hard for us to think of it in Australia, but just imagine if the, the military was deployed here permanently in you know remote indigenous communities like just all the time and you'd have some form of guerrilla warfare that's kind of gives you a picture of the history of the Tatmadaw and that the use of um yeah ethnic divisions and armed conflict to sort of um split different groups against each other but one thing that you've started to see is like i remember last week i can't remember it might have been in Kachin state or in was the Korean that other armed groups were basically protecting um protesters and strikers in parts of um those states, but then you'd have to say that to some extent I think maybe correct me if I'm wrong the demands for federalism have become quite um prominent, and all of the, the sort of um yeah. the trade unions are raising this too and I was reading a piece by a commentator who was also not that sympathetic to this demand for federalism, basically saying that, you know, the, the, the fact that been, this has been taken up by sections of the trade union movement shows that there is some of the politics of the countryside filtering in to the cities, into the trade unions, and that, you know, a lot of you look at the, the different um, unions that have been set up for garment workers and, like... Nine, nine out of ten of the people that, you know, are prominent within that. They're like of some ethnic minority. So that's kind of filtered through. The other dimension is that um, in 2010, 2011, when there was the transition to civilian rule, a lot of political exiles came back um, into the country um, who have played a role in um, starting to organise in the trade unions. Um, so. Not as you, you wouldn't call them like a a dead weight layer in the way that we we think of trade union officials in Australia. It's more that like they they've basically spent their time in exile trying to study you know different you know different questions, be involved in labor activism across the region. One of the things that's significant is they do have all of these connections to other countries in the region, um, and that they seem to have added a dimension of. Like, well, you know, these these sorts of divisions aren't useful, like in terms of racism and sexism and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's one of the things that Liam raised before that's distinctive is that so you have unions forming out of strikes and riots, and like those workers that played a prominent role in the strike committee go on to become a full time official, but all of them then have this living link to, you know, we organized a wildcat strike. In some cases, we kidnapped the boss and laid siege to a whole town and basically demanded our wages get paid. And they're doing that in an alliance with some people who've spent, you know, time in jail or exile, all of these sorts of things. So it makes it much more radical and explosive.
0: Let's talk about some of those things. Mm. Yeah, in terms of the scale of the strikes and the mass mobilizations and in the face of um, the, the armed forces' reaction and on a couple of occasions, like killing multiple people at demonstrations, like what has surprised you about that? Like, uh, or, you know, what kind of stories have you heard around just the sheer – magnitude of, of this and what it means to people and you know are they gaining confidence as as things go on and is it getting co- kind of bigger and more determined even though there's obviously been um we don't know how many people who've been arrested and, and taken we don't exactly know how many people have been killed but both of those things are happening ha- like do you have a sense of how people are feeling and some of that
1: yeah absolutely so um the general feeling um the general feeling that we have here say like with with like my my youth committee as well as um a lot of sort of like protesters and um people from Myanmar my age is that we are feeling I guess like helpless but not hopeless I think that's the general sort of like that's the general sort of um, feelings to it. So we are still sort of very defined. We are still very hopeful, very optimistic about like things sort of eventually, hopefully, turning around. Feeling helpless, of course, because that sort of like comes from like the amount of deaths that have sort of occurred and the amount of arrests and things like that. And like people, you know, comrades, our age that are sort of, um, that are being jailed and tortured and killed. Uh, the scale of this has been immense. So that's something that that's something that caught me personally by surprise. Um, is I guess like the sheer magnitude of people, and as um, Robin Liam was saying, like ethnic minorities coming together. Um, you know, entire country, like the entire country, with different ethnic minorities, religions, and things like that. They're all sort of coming together, and that's been that's been a very sort of um <clears throat> hopeful um visual for me as well. Mm. Because as we were saying, like, you know, like like I genuinely like didn't know about like the infighting oh sorry I I, I knew about the infighting mm. because, you know, different regions all, you know, claim to have like the best noodle soup. Um <laughs> but I didn't realize, like, I, like you know, we, we all have that sort of like, um, that petty infighting, but I didn't realize, I guess, like the sheer magnitude of it, mm. um, as far as, you know, like guerrilla warfare and, like, um, and, uh, their own sort of like national armies, oh, sorry, like their own sort of like state run armies and ethnic, um, armies and things like that. That's something that I, like, I kind of knew about, but didn't realize, I guess, like the, The magnitude of the situation. So to see, so to see like, you know, people from these different ethnic minorities sort of, and including as well, um, as we mentioned earlier, like the Rohingya people as well, to come together to defy this, you know, this military dictatorship to defy this junta is, that's been like, that's been incredibly like heartwarming for me as well, um, to see that. So I think that's what sort of makes me feel sort of I guess like hopeful because this is the first time in so long that there's been I guess like Mm -hmm. um, like mass unity between I guess like all like the different cultures and all the different people
0: around the country. Mm. And Rob, as a socialist, and we'll we'll start to um, wrap this up. But like uh, I think it took a little while for people to really pay this um, enough attention. (laughs) Um, on the left around the world, Um, and we don't have time to go into the reasons for that, but like why should socialists care about what's happening in Myanmar right now?
1: Um,
2: I think there's a a few different reasons. Um, The the first is the the degree to which the working class has been um, involved in this struggle, like it's quite – prominent when you think about all of the the mass struggles that have erupted across not just the region but across the world um in the last few years or you could even go right back to um the globe like the beginning of the global financial crisis and to look at the scale of what's going on in terms of you've had two mass political general strikes um you'd have to probably go back to the arab spring to look at something comparable in the scale of um, what's going on, probably Tunisia or Egypt, um, of the degree of working class involvement and not just as as an exalt, uh, auxiliary to, you know, some, you know, um, you know, politicians trying to stage these set piece kind of strikes or whatever. It's literally a fight to the death, like the, ex- the existential threat that military rule, um, you know, poses for Trade unionists and the working class movement there. it actually shows you some of the um yeah the the combativity of the stuff going on. um like the the leading role that, yeah, as we've mentioned, um minorities but also like women have played in this, like it's significant that on international working women's day, that was when the um the most recent general strike, an extended general strike um was called. And, you know, it was garment workers, like young women, the people who spearheaded that process and um, and winning those calls amongst other trade unions that we need to put ourselves at the forefront of this and shut the entire economy down and we need to make a call out to all other workers who aren't part of unions to join that call and not go back to work. Um, and, you know, there's been different industrially powerful sections of the working class have played a role in that as well. Like the train drivers have been out on strike since about – I think the 8th of Feb or something like that um, who were were also galvanized by um, you know young women workers there was this amazing scene that I watched where um, there was a mass meeting and I couldn't understand much of what was being said in that but you could I got someone to help translate some things and basically it was we need to we need to go out and campaign to the men to go out on strike and very quickly you saw like train drivers refusing to um, transport troops and then you know they, they try and send the the military police into these working class districts, and then you just there's this video of like just masses and masses of students and um, young workers and women at the forefront of that, leading these big crowds into these working class districts, and just like totally pulverising the cops and driving them out. Like it's you want to you want to see the 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 beauty of revolutions and the sheer like creativity and courage of people um, in these moments, like. That's going on in Myanmar right now. Um, I think one of the other things is that is not so much a, a negative point, but is it? It is slightly negative. Is that there is no political alternative to the NLD in this situation? Which is, you can see that there's a basis for a, a different type of political organisation based in these radical students and the working class movement that. For, for all intents and purposes, the NLD have cut deals with the military before. Um, that's what, you know, that's what the civilian rule was basically. It was a power-sharing deal with the military and we've seen how that's ended up. Um, you could say that, you know, a, a similar situation could arise in the future where to defy, you know, the NLD requires a political alternative. So um, for revolutionary socialists, we say that we need to build a revolutionary party of workers and students um be militant um lead other lead other layers, like you can see that there's a basis in what's going on there um for that sort of party, but unfortunately, yeah, at least in my um attempts to reach out to activists over there i haven't I haven't found anyone yet that's involved in that sort of project
0: hmm. and what would you say is the biggest lesson so far, liam? I'm just putting you on Ooh. the spot <laughs>
3: um Well, it kind of flows out of the points that Rob was finishing with there that, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, one of the best, one of the most popular chants that you see on the protests in Myanmar is our revolution must win and, or, you know, our revolution must triumph, you know. I think that just poses the question of what does victory mean, you know, and and as Rob said, the NLD, you know, their vision, what they think of as, as success in this revolution, what they see as success is putting themselves back in political power without necessarily doing anything to weaken the stranglehold of the military. You know, and that is that would be a disaster for the millions of people who are out there protesting against the junta right now, because that military will wreak their revenge against them, you know? And so not only do the NLD have a different vision of what victory looks like as opposed to, you know, the vision of what victory means to the people, the millions of people who carry the NLD placards like the Leonardi actually have a different vision of what victory means. Not only is it different, it's actually counterposed. You know, the, the, and so in order to actually win, the revolution in Myanmar must find a way to actually smash the state, to fundamentally tear up the grip of the military root and branch, to, to cleanse that whole fucking system of the military's stranglehold. There's only one force that can do that, and we know this from history, and that is the organized workers movement. You know, only the working class that can Wield uh, its industrial power, that can unite uh, everyone else behind it, and they can actually wield the power to smash the state and to pose something different. That is really the only path to a genuine victory in, in Myanmar. And the reason that matters for the rest of the world is because, you know, there are various idiots on the left around the world who have, who have forgotten that lesson and who think you don't need to smash the state uh, to achieve human liberation, you know. And, and so the fact that that is posed as a life or death question for the struggling Myanmar actually hints at the fact. That it's a life and death question anywhere that a revolution happens, you know. And so, people who abandon that, who think you can like vote your way into socialism or whatever the hell these idiots around the world tend to think is the current trend of the day, you know, like they're wrong. And Myanmar is about to show us that, for better or for
0: worse. And obviously, there's, there's heaps that we haven't been able to talk about. Maybe we'll have to do a part two and and see um, if listeners to this episode have questions. We do. Um, I'll put our email address in the um along with some other things to follow up and read and places that you can find more information about all of this because uh just googling is probably not gonna get you to exactly the right spot. So we'll give you some links and some places to go and read more. And if you've got questions you want us to come back and answer then I reckon that might be a, a cool thing to do. So I'm gonna just get you in to say something um to finish with and I was gonna ask you if you imagined that um, that people who are going on strike, who are leading these protests, who are on the street, who are facing the military in Myanmar, are list- we're listening to this podcast right now. Uh, what would you say to them?
1: Thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, from like the bottom of my heart, like uh, you have shown me and the rest of the world a certain level of tenacity and courage that I don't know whether I could ever muster up or the people could ever sort of understand or comprehend. You know, this is, as we mentioned, this is a life or death situation. And yeah, thank you from the bottom of my heart to like, you know, I want to eventually say like, bring my future kids there one day. Um, I want to go back and see my family one day and things like that. So this act of defiance is sort of like, you know, this life or death situation is, is, is something that won't go unnoticed. It's something that will go down in history as, as an incredible show of defiance. Um, and it won't be forgotten. Um Whatever we can do here we can do we will. However we can help we will. And um uh The revolution must win.
0: Well thank you so much for being with us on Red Flag Radio and of course we send our solidarity to the struggle. Thanks Rob. Thanks thank you thanks Liam. Thanks. This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.